Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the first of a periodic series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. You've just heard the Ten Commandments, but let me read the first few verses of Exodus 20 uh, that we'll be focusing on today. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that in the last days you have spoken to us in your Son and revealed your will and sent your Spirit so that we can fulfill your righteousness, a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. As we consider this portion of your word today, build us up to be your children, sons in the Spirit, sons in your Son, doing your will gladly uh, before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Israel is in the wilderness three months before they arrive at Sinai. By the time they get to Sinai, Egypt is behind them in ruins because of the plagues. By the time they get to Sinai, they've passed through the waters. They've begun to to trek through the wilderness. They've had an opportunity to complain and grumble about the food selection in the wilderness. Too much manna, they say. And then they come to Sinai, which has been their destination from the beginning, the place where they are going to cut covenant with their Lord, the place where they're going in order to offer sacrifice to him. This third month event at Sinai was commemorated year after year in Israel in the third month, the third month festival known as Pentecost, named Pentecost because it was 50 days after Passover. Fifty days after Passover, Israel comes to Sinai and the Lord speaks to them. The Lord speaks on the third day of this third month and he speaks to them ten words. In our usage, we usually talk about the Ten Commandments. When you look at the Bible, you'll find that that phrase Ten Commandments doesn't actually appear in the text of the Bible itself. You'll find it in headings within your Bible. You'll find it in catechisms and confessions and theology treatises. But in Exodus and Deuteronomy, they are called the Ten Words, and I'm adopting that usage throughout the sermon series. God speaks ten words on the third day of the third month. He's spoken ten words before. Back at the beginning of all things, when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke over seven, six, over six days, but he spoke ten times. Ten times the Lord, the, the text says, and God spoke. And God spoke and there was light. And God spoke and there was a firmament. And God spoke and so on and so forth. God speaks again ten words, ten creative words, ten new creative words, so that Israel, who has been redeemed from Egypt, can become his new creation in the world. He's spoken on the third day before also. During the third day of the creation week, God spoke in his seventh speech within that creation week. 
And he spoke to the land and said, The land, bring forth grasses bearing seed, bring forth fruit trees bearing fruit. And the land answered him, responded to his command, and brought forth grasses bearing seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. Here in the third month, on the first Pentecost, Pentecost, a feast of the first fruits, the first fruits from the land of Egypt gather before the Lord and God speaks to them again. God has spoken in Egypt. God has spoken through plagues. God has spoken through Moses. And he has spoken to bring forth a harvest from Egypt. And now the first fruits of that harvest stand before him at Sinai. He identifies himself as Yahweh, your God. The Lord doesn't speak to Israel as some unknown God. He doesn't speak to Israel as God in general. He uses the name that he spoke on this mountain, on Sinai, when he revealed his name to Moses earlier in the book of Exodus. When Moses was sojourning in Midian, taking care of the flocks of Jethro, he went off onto Mount Horeb and there saw a burning bush. And out of that burning bush, the Lord revealed his name. I am that I am. Yahweh. I am that I am. The Hebrew is more ambiguous. The Hebrew tense can mean virtually any tense in English. I am who I am, I will be who I was, I will be who I will be, take your pick, all of these fit, because when God says I am who I am, and he names himself Yahweh, he's saying that he will always be the God that he is, he will always be the God that he always was, but more particularly, he says I am that I am, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who claimed Abraham and his children as my people. The God who's bound myself to Israel. I am the God who is determined to be God only if Israel can be with me as my people. I've adopted their name into my name. That's the God who reveals himself at the burning bush. God reveals himself as the God who will be all that Israel needs him to be. He will do all that Israel needs him to do, and he will do it forever until every promise that he made to Abraham is fulfilled. That's the God who speaks to Israel from Mount Sinai. Not some faceless, unknown God. Not some God in general. But Yahweh, the God of Israel. The God who has committed himself to Abraham and to his children forever. Later we learn that these Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God onto two tablets of stone. And historically, the church has usually believed that these two tablets, each of these two tablets, contained some part of the ten words. One tablet contained some of the ten words, the other tablet contained the rest. But there's never been a consensus about which tablet, which how to divide up the Ten Commandments. Some say that there are three commandments on the first table and seven on the second. Some say there are six on the first, and, or four on the first, and six on the second. I'm here to solve the problem for you today. It's a five and five. Whether that's actually what's on the tablets, I don't know. But that's how the Ten Commandments split out. There are two sets of five commandments. Count them on your fingertips. Two hands of God. Two tablets of stone written by the finger of God with God's words on them. Why do I say it's five and a five. Just look through the Ten Commandments if you have your Bibles open. Look at how long the first five commandments are. 
Each of the first five commandments, especially if you take verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, as the explanation for the first commandments, each of the first five commandments contains an explanation or a warning. Why should you worship no other God but me? Because I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Why should we not worship images? Because the Lord is jealous. Why should we bear the Lord's name weightily and not lightly? Because Yahweh does not leave those unpunished who bear his name lightly. Why should we keep Sabbath? Because Yahweh did. Why should you honor your father and mother? Because God promises long life in the land. Every single one of the first five commandments contains some sort of explanation. None of the second five do. Each of the first five commandments includes the name Yahweh. It names the name of God. None of the second five commandments do. The first five commandments are much longer than the second five. The second five in the Hebrew, most of them are just two words. Don't kill. Don't adulterate. Don't steal. We can't do it in English. But there are only two words in those commandments in Hebrew. You get a little bit longer through the last two commandments. But you have a split at the begin- at the middle. You have five commandments and then five more commandments. Five commandments that name Yahweh, five commandments with explanations, and then five very terse commandments without explanation, without some any theological grounding. Why would the Lord arrange his commandments this way? Why would he speak this way? Two pairs of five. We can think of one traditional reason that the commandments are split up into two parts because there are two main commandments. Jesus himself tells us this. Jesus sums up the ten words. Jesus sums up the whole law by saying the law is about this, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are two tables of the law, two sets of five, because there's a a pair of great commandments, and the ten commandments fill out what it means to love God with your whole heart and mind and soul, and what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. But I think we can go further. Not only do we have a pair of commandments in Jesus' teaching, but we also have other sets of five and five in the Bible. Five sets of fingers on each hand, five sets of uh, five toes on each foot. But there are five and five within the temple. There are uh, two sets of five things in the temple. Once the temple is built by Solomon, these ten words written by God's finger on these tablet on the tablets of stone are placed in the inner sanctuary of the temple, inside the Ark of the Covenant. These two sets of five commandments are housed below the Lord's throne. They are the footstool of his feet. Imagine that you're there inside the most holy place. You're standing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. The two tablets, maybe you've peeked inside the Ark of the Covenant. Don't try that. Just imagine it, but don't try it. You peeked inside the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen these two sets of five. And then you come out from the most holy place into the holy place. And there are ten lampstands, five on each side of the temple. And there are ten tables of bread, five on each side of the temple. And you stroll through the holy place and out into the courtyard. And you go out into the courtyard and you find that there are ten water stands that are set up on these contraptions that look like they're chariots. They have wheels. They have structures like chariots, but they're water basins. There are ten of them set up in two rows of five. What you're looking at in the temple is a picture of what the word of the Lord going out from the Lord's throne, the word of the Lord going out from Sinai, the word of the Lord going out from the temple mount. And as it goes out, those five plus five commandments become five plus five 
lampstands, and five plus five tables of bread, and five plus five chariots of water. That is to say, those five plus five commandments illuminate Israel. They are the lamp to Israel's feet. As Israel puts those commandments on its heart, they become lights. The the light of the Lord, which is the word of the Lord, radiates from them. These five plus five commandments are like five plus five tables laden with bread. These commandments are Israel's food because we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If that was all we had, we could think, isn't Israel privileged? They have the five plus five commandments. They have the Lord's light. They have the Lord's bread. They have light and they have food and the Lord's word for them. But out in the courtyard, there are chariots of water that uh, symbolically, at least, are going out from the temple, moving out into the nations, moving out from Israel, out to the world. And those, too, represent the movement of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, the Torah of God, is supposed to flow out of Israel, making Israel a light to the Gentiles, giving Israel food, and then flowing out like water, flowing out to refresh the land, flowing out to refresh the nations, to make the nations fruitful so that the first fruits that is Israel can be joined by a full harvest, the full harvest of nations. When you put the Ten Commandments with their five plus five structure into that temple setting, you can see a picture of what the commandments are for. The commandments are for light. The commandments are our food. The commandments are the word that we take out to the nations. To whom is the Lord speaking? Well, of course, to Israel. But it's a little more complicated than that. The Lord has been speaking already. Israel's been at Sinai for a little while when the Lord begins to speak the Ten Commandments. He's been speaking already, but he's been speaking to Moses. And then Moses hears the word of the Lord and he delivers it to the people. After the Ten Commandments, they're going to go back to that. Moses is going to send up the mountain. He's going to see the pattern of the tabernacle. And he's going to repeat that pattern down below. He's going to listen to the rest of the law that the Lord gives, and he'll deliver it himself to Israel. But this is unique. The ten words are unique because the Lord is speaking directly to Israel. He's not speaking through a mediator. These are the only unmediated words that we have in the Torah. All the rest of the words of the Torah come through Moses. But here the Lord speaks directly to Israel. So to whom is the Lord speaking? Well, he's speaking Israel. But it's still more complicated. There's a grammatical puzzle. Don't you love Hebrew grammar? There's a grammatical puzzle. These commandments are all phrased in a second person singular with second person singular verbs. You singular have no other gods before me. That's what the Ten Commandments in the that's what the uh, King James is getting at when it translates the ten words as thou. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. In 16th century English, that was, that was an indicator of a singular second person verb, a singular second person pronoun. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. The Lord is speaking to 600,000 fighting men plus women and children, probably a couple million people. He addresses them as thou. You, singular, have no other gods before me. You, singular, don't make any graven images to bow to or to worship. 
you, singular, bear my name with weight. Why would he do that? Why is the Lord speaking in the singular way, in a singular way, to this large collection of people? Well, perhaps he wants to emphasize that each individual among those two million or so people that are gathered at Sinai, each of those people are being personally addressed by the Ten Commandments. And that's certainly true. It's not enough for Israel to receive these words and say, well, okay, in general, in general, you know, 75 or 80% of us will not commit adultery. That's not a bad percentage. That's all that the Lord wants. 60% of us will go through our lives without killing anybody. That's not bad. It's better than some people. No, each individual in Israel is being addressed as each individual here is being addressed. You, thou, each one of you must have no other gods before God. None of you must hate or kill your neighbor. None of you must bear false witness. None of you must have desires for your neighbor's house, wife, donkey, car, whatever. Each of you is being addressed individually. I think that's true, but I don't think that's the deepest reason why the Lord speaks this way to Israel. He is speaking to Israel, but he's speaking to Israel as a single person, as a single male person. The second masculine singular is the form of the verbs here. Why? Who has been redeemed from Egypt? Who has been gathered at Sinai? Who did the Lord go to Egypt to rescue? The Lord went to Egypt to rescue Israel as his son. Since Moses to Pharaoh and says, Israel is my son, let my son go. That's the legal basis for the Lord's demand to Pharaoh. You've kidnapped my son. You've enslaved my son, the Lord says. Keep your hands off my son. That family relation that the Lord has taken with Israel is the basis for the demand to Pharaoh to let the son go. And Pharaoh refuses, of course. And the Lord cuts off the negotiations. And eventually the Lord takes justice, and it's a perfect, precise justice, son for son. You've taken my firstborn son, Pharaoh. I'm going to take your firstborn son. In fact, all the firstborn sons of Egypt. The whole Exodus story is about Israel's sonship. And now they're coming to Mount Sinai, and the Lord addresses them in the singular as a son. This is not just the Lord, the exalted Lord speaking to his servants. This is a father-son talk. This is Yahweh, the father of Israel, speaking to his children, telling them the house rules, how they're to behave, what he likes and what he doesn't like, how they can be true sons of the living God. It's like uh, the book of Proverbs, a father addressing his son. That's what the ten words are. This is instruction from the divine father to Israel, his son. And these words are given to form Israel. They're ten new creative words that are given to form Israel, to recreate Israel as his son. If Israel hears and keeps these words, they will be like their father. If each individual Israelite hears and keeps these words, he will be a true son or daughter of Yahweh. If Israel as a whole hears and keeps these words, their corporate life together will be a manifestation of God's own character. 
of God's own righteousness, of God's own love and covenant faithfulness. The Lord addresses Israel as son and gives them a father-son talk and tells them what he wants from them as his son, how they're to live as his son in his house. Israel's not ready for this. Verse 18, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountains smoking, and when the people saw it, they tremble and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. Father addresses son and the son can't hear it. The son cannot receive the words that the Lord speaks. And so the Lord graciously speaks for the rest of the Pentateuch through Moses and not directly to his son Israel. And Israel, this is just the beginning of resistance to the word that comes from the Lord, the word that comes from the mountain. It's just the beginning of Israel's resistance to the ten words, the five plus five words that are supposed to be their light and their food and their mission. This is the first time that they resist, but not the last. And Israel's whole history is, an Israel, is a history largely of covenant breaking, not covenant keeping. It's largely the story of a prodigal son who won't stay in his father's house, who won't listen to his father's instruction, who does not resemble his father. But Israel is not hopeless because Yahweh will have a son. Yahweh will have a true Israel that will do exactly what these words require. There will be an Israel that will keep every last bit of his law. This is a father-son talk. It's a description of the father's likes and dislikes. It's a description of what the son should be. It's a description of Jesus. The ten words are telling us what true humanity looks like, and we see that filled out in a human life in Jesus. He's the one who has no other gods above his own father. He's the one who does not bow to images, but is the image of his heavenly father. He's the one who bears the name of his father with the weight that it deserves. He's the one who keeps and gives rest. He's the one who honors his father and Israel, his mother. He doesn't kill He subjects himself to an unjust murder. He doesn't commit adultery. He is faithful to his bride. He doesn't steal. He restores things that he has not stolen. He pays our debts. He restores things that we've taken from God. And everything is good. Jesus is the one who bears true witness. Jesus is the one who's all all of whose desires, all of whose desires, are to please and obey his Father, the living God. Jesus is the one who keeps these commandments. We think of there's, you know, there's New Testament ethics, there's Old Testament ethics. No. This is a description of Jesus. The church has said there's many uses to the law. The law is given to us to convict us of our sins. The law is given to restrain the unruly. The law is given to be a guide for life. Those are all true. But behind and underneath all of that, the law is given as a revelation of Jesus Christ who is the living word, the living Torah of God. The ten words in flesh. 
There will be an Israel. There has been an Israel who keeps these commandments. But Jesus is not alone in that. There'll be another Pentecost, another third month event when the Lord will show up with a rushing wind and fire, and the Spirit will write not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. And the Spirit will begin to form true sons, a true Israel, a corporate son in the Son. The ten words are ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, and they're fulfilled in us as we trust in Jesus and trust in the work of his Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, as we keep in step with the Spirit, these words come to describe our lives, and the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of Jesus. And then we are true sons and daughters of God. This is a description of God's own character. This is a description of Jesus the Son. It's a description of what God is making us to be. Because in the Spirit, these ten new creative words really do remake us to be the true Israel, the Son of the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the way that they draw our attention to your loves and your hatreds. We pray that we would take them to heart. We pray that these words would live in us, that your Spirit would write these words on our hearts so that we would walk by the Spirit and so fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We pray that you would conform us to the image of your living Son, your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, so that as a body and individually, all of us together and each of us would reflect your character as your children. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.